0: Dame Stephanie, thank you very much for joining me on the Meaningful Business podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. The life itself has been one that's been described as, you know, pushing limits, um, testing those limits and trying to sort of find your place in that. Is that an apt description?
1: Well, of course, it's a long life. And so in a sense, I've been pushing the limits. Um, Firstly, uh, as a refugee, making some sort of a life for myself with my wonderful foster parents in the UK. Um, Secondly, with a a young then woman in business, when at a time when women, you have no idea. It's so recent that uh, I needed my husband's signature in order to do any financial transaction or hire a car or get, heaven forbid, a, a mortgage. So it's very recent that women have ceased to be second class citizens. Um, And then for the last 20 odd years, um, I've been really trying to do some new things in philanthropy, um, very much learning by my mistakes. Um, I also think my company became a learning organization because like you, it was a startup. And so we made lots and lots and lots of mistakes, but we recovered from them. And people think that um, entrepreneurs um, we take lots of risks. Well, we take some risks. Um, but really, we're remembered for our successes. And in fact, we make lots of failures. I mean, I've, I lost a small fortune in America. I failed in the Netherlands. I failed in um, the Scandinavia. Um, the one that really took off, though, was India. Interesting. And that took 20 years between um having the idea of actually exporting software to 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 england to exporting mm. software to india uh, to it actually happening but we finished up with half the half the company over there
0: now a lot of um, listeners are entrepreneurs themselves and i'm sure they'd be very interested to know what drove you through each stage of your life which has had its interesting it moments
1: well i mentioned the refugee start because that is actually part of what Drives me, it's probably 99% of what drives me. Um, I realised very early in my life that um, the life that was saved by the kinder transport, I was brought out by the Quakers, and um, I really needed to make that a life that was worth saving. And so I've become a very worthy person and desperate needing to become self-sufficient, no longer having things happen to me, but making things happen. And I think in business, this is what one's doing. You're you're making things happen, new things, presumably. Um, And um, when you look at the entrepreneurial activity in the UK, and presumably the same is true of other countries, um, a very high proportion, 7% I was told, were actually set up by immigrants and you think that's an awfully high proportion because they're not that many immigrants seven um, percent and you sort of think well yes immigrants um, we, we might have discrimination and so we start freelancing and that grows into a company or for an adult immigrant you might remember uh, something that happened in uh, the country of your origin and, and think, well, that would work here as well, so introduce it to Britain. But really, Peter, I, I, I think it's that, um, I I, I, yeah, I just became a very, very stubborn, um, not aggressive, assertive person. Um, I was sick and tired of being patronised and I was going to
0: do my own thing. Mm. And these are qualities which, mean, which if a man had them, would be totally normalised um, and almost seen as necessary to see, see But obviously that's for, I suppose, when you were starting out of a senior, oh gosh, you know, why do you...
1: Yes, I, th- I, th- I think, as a woman, I tried very hard to make myself acceptable, um, so that, for example, my company, which was an all-female company, I can talk further about mm. that, but w- we had a sort of house rule, it wasn't written, but it was the convention, that we did not wear trousers, That. We felt that that would actually challenge the male clients that we were um, trying to um, sell to. And I can remember being taught certain um, uh, things to do to to make myself look more vulnerable. Interesting. Um, To um, pretend I couldn't fold up my umbrella. That was one. Um, dropped my handbag on the floor and by the time we'd scrabbled around and got, got everything back and so on, but, you know, it was obvious I was a silly little woman. So tactical it? vulnerability. <laughs> yes. And, and I mean, I look back now and I think I wouldn't do that anymore. Yes, interesting. But, uh, you know, this was in the early 1960s yeah. and it seemed to be necessary. In particular, as, as you may have read, um, I dissembled as to my gender in my letters so that instead of signing with that double feminine of Stephanie Shirley, Shirley being my middle name, I signed as Steve Shirley. So it wasn't until I walked through the door that they realised, ooh,
0: what have we got here? Cat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be absolutely clear, your first company was selling software, which at the time, it, even regardless of its female orientated um, company, was was new. Oh, a bit of laughter. Yeah, it, it was a pioneer in, in two yeah. or three senses yeah. of the word. What made you push that forward? What made you believe that that was the right way of doing bad things?
1: I don't think I had any sort of enormous technical vision. I loved mathematics and I fell in love with computers, which is what like so. We became somewhat obsessed by computers, as many of us did. I just had the feeling that the software, which was the bit I did... Um, was more important than people gave it credit for. And so I thought I could separate software out from the hardware. And people did laugh because at that time, software was given away free with the hardware and you can't possibly sell software, Uh, certainly not from a woman. Um, So we had um, a a ropey start. um, And of course, from my character, when people laughed at me, I became more determined. Oh, I'm going to make this work. And um, the sheer business um, pattern, uh, the, the business model was more to do with women's emancipation mm-hmm. than it was to actually develop software. It was just something that I knew and loved and could do. And, thought I'd got a a reasonable reputation for and I assumed that the world would beat a path to
0: my door because I was well known in software wasn't I yeah Um, but it didn't of course (laughs) (laughs) did you become quite infamous as a company or as an individual at the time it couldn't have been a very large sector to work in in the 1960s
1: I think I sold very much on Steve Shirley Um, the media described me as the ubiquitous Steve Shirley because I really got round. I was promoting, I'd do five sales calls in a day. Probably not very um, productive, but, you know, at <laughs> least you I did. was getting out there, <laughs> you know. And at least people know who we are. What happened with our female company was that eventually we were known more for who we were. It was Steve and this predominantly female company for the first 13 years. Um, Rather than what we could do and that eventually we had to sort of really play down our female roots um, Because because we had certain skills um, That we were wanting to exploit in software. We only did tailor-made software, so it wasn't as if we had products or um, We moved a little bit into one product in the um, when the minis came in before your time Um, but that was another company that died without trace within three years or something like that. That is
0: wanted in the entrepreneurial yes. world. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. And the company, the, the all-female company, was also named because, you know, you almost pioneered flexible working, co-ownership. Well, I think
1: I started the gig economy. Yeah. <laughs> no, with this oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, there, there you, you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything, it, it It was, I was very much driven by this concept that women were, were being blocked out of the majority of the interesting work. And so I was determined to set up a company that was the sort of company I would want to work for, sort of company that I thought a lot of other women would want to work for. And whenever you ask a group of women what they want from their employer, um, two things always come out, flexibility and work-life balance. And a few other things as well, but you know, always those two come out and we provided flexibility to the extreme you could work part-time you could work on annualized hours you could work as a freelancer or as a consultant or min max contracts or zero hour contracts they worked very well for us i mean i'm amazed that they're so unpopular they worked very well for us people liked them because it really gave them what they wanted and we were flexible in terms of uh, we paid staff from a cafeteria of benefits so that they could sort of say every either six months or a year um, how much they wanted in direct remuneration mm-hmm. um, and how much they would like to have at holidays or better car or whatever. Uh, and
0: no one else no in the industry thought to look at that model and apply it to themselves? Or?
1: I thought especially for the women, a lot of companies would follow. And some have, um, even today. I mean, I know companies that are group of women lawyers, group of women doctors, you know, because um, a minority group and women behaved then as a minority group. Um, we're better together. And you will find women who actually talk about sisters, which is a bit extreme, um, but there is a sisterhood. Um, I will help other women coming up. Um, there are some women who who, I mean, the woman who took over for me, Hilary Cropper, and she was absolutely marvelous. Um, she really made it profitable, which I hadn't. I'd got sort of profitless prosperity. It was bigger and bigger each year, but <laughs> there there it went. But um, she always sort of said, oh, I I I. I I managed it on my own, and to a certain extent she did. But she got her first board appointment with me. How was I felt? You know, I gave you a bit of a helping hand. You
0: know. I mean, pardon me, thinking that that cafeteria benefits you, which you just mentioned, are things that millennials or even Gen Z professionals yeah. expect from their modern day yes. organisations. So I mean, why do you think it's taken so long? Because it's only really been in the last two to three years, or maybe five years, this has been a thing. Well,
1: yeah, technology changes relatively fast, but people change very slowly. It almost takes a generation of of people who have observed, have seen, have heard their parents and their peer group talking about it, and then accepting a change. And that's the sort of thing that will come up with artificial intelligence. Um, You know, yes, people like me who are early adopters. Um, have some sort of feeling for what is going on um, but most people will wait until
0: much much later mm. can, can one learn to be an early adopter or is it something that is than... now, that's a question I've never
1: been asked um, I think one can teach oneself perhaps to be a bit more of an early adopter and just sort of say, I'm going to try things when they're put in front of me. And most new things fail. Most new projects fail. Most new companies fail. Um, but when they don't, it,
0: it's very interesting. Would you regard your organisation back then and subsequent organisations which had these components of them, which had athletes working as an anomaly at the time, or were you just very... Oh, Very we were an anomaly. I
1: mean, Harvard Business School was writing case studies on us, you know. We we were the, oh,
0: wow. an oddity, you know. Really, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. And what would they, they learn? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one awful occasion when somebody from the London Business School did a study on us. And um, he, he, we were still home-based then, had no offices. So I saw him in my home, uh, which I always like to do, actually. Um, and... Um, he wrote in a professional study like many women of her ilk she is indifferent to the appearance of her home i was insulted oh, wow. i really was it's very blunt and it was very blunt um uh, it's a term I, I i mean i still remember the wording now because i really was quite upset about it. i had a learning disabled son and it was all a bit chaotic you know piles of books on the piano and all that sort of thing mm. Um, very um, amateur and domestic. Well, I must very keen tidy
0: now. Just to reiterate that.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, I think because I didn't have a classic education. I mean, I went to a decent school. Um, I had to change schools twice in order to study mathematics. Um, but I didn't go to university. And I sometimes think if I had, which I wish I had... Perhaps I would have been a more conventional thinker, but nobody had taught me
0: what one wasn't supposed to do in business. Mm, so okay. I just went ahead and did it. Which could have been actually a competitive differentiator, yeah. in a way of thinking. And then since you... See, you know, the company ran for 13 years before, I think it was the... Um, a British law came in that went to gender equality. So ironically, you had to have... She- <laughs> Get nails into the co- company. Uh, and then since then, you sort of have become more of a philanthropist as, as, the, as you sort of saw success and wanted to sort of give back, I imagine. Um, yes,
1: um, I took the company into something called the Percent Club. So we actually committed to spending 1% of pre tax profits to charity. And I can remember when I took it up to a board, because I had an operational board, um, they sort of asked the obvious question well, what are we spending now? And surprise, surprise, I didn't know because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, uh, yeah. which is, you know, a, a useful lesson I learned at that point. Um, but um, I think my largest gift as a philanthropist was of a quarter of the company um, going to into the hands of the staff at no cost to anyone but me. Um, and I'm very proud of that. God knows how much it was worth. Uh, But it took me 11 years to do that, once I decided and I hoped to do more but it just didn't work out Mm. that way. But I got a quarter there and that is um, something I'm enormously proud of. I think the staff took a long time to realise quite how exciting that was. But to me it was an extension of the sisterhood, the collegiate culture and then why not co-ownership? Mm. We'd always had a bonus scheme, but I mean, that's very short term and so on, but you know, this is our company and, and
0: it, um, I, it, it worked pretty well. And, and did it benefit in terms of retention rate, for example, like was it a company that sort of grew everybody up together?
1: Uh, we didn't measure that.
0: Um, one of the
1: things that's being measured currently by EY, on a pro bono basis, is our gender balance over 45 years, oh, that's interesting. Um, which I, you know, I've always wanted to yeah, know, that's why. Um, because up, I will come back to your question. Um, up to 1975, when we had to start employing men, uh, we were 99% female. The first 300 staff had three men in them. You know, we, we were definitely a woman's company. Um, and then we started employing um, men, probably slightly with positive. We want, we needed more men, and we, you know, we really went out of our way. First few appointments were not successful, interesting, uh, for a variety of reasons. I think we didn't know how to interview. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, they're different.
0: And um, did they sort of what the interview One didn't go well, or they didn't. They interview went the culture.
1: Fine. When they got there, they. You know this wonderful thing that they said that they knew all about they'd done three weeks of it <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Over-promised>, so, <under-lift. laughs> uh, like something like
1: that yes um, but um, then when we started making acquisitions obviously that really impacted the gender ratio um, and we finished up pretty well indistinguishable from any other quality corporate
0: mm. um,
1: one or two people on the board women on the board um, the vast majority of women in the lower um, and middle management. Was that surprising to you? Disappointing, I think, Peter.
0: Um, I was disappointed. I hoped. I hoped it would do more. It brings me back to the point of this podcast, which is a meaningful business—a business that is makes profit, but also um, has a higher purpose. Well, uh, we,
1: we we were, I think, what is now called a social business, and we might have today we would be a CIC or something like that. Um, when I started um, just to set the culture I investigated whether to fund it as a charity. Interesting. And then I realised the obvious thing that I would women's company would never be respected if we were a charity. I had to make it commercially successful and then all the um, Yes, a, a lot of things would follow from mm. that, and certainly that was quite correct.
0: And when you look at social enterprises today, I mean, the, the trend for business at the moment is a for purpose. You know, All yes. these companies are retroactively now... Either in products, of yes. Well, it's part of branding. Exactly. So yes. what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, you've done, you've done that. That was 20, 30 years ago, and now the But I had to learn about
1: branding, because it started off all as a cultural and we're there for... We would measure success... Um, yes, it had to have positive cash flow and that was always an enormous problem for us. Um, yes, it had to have some profits as well, but I wasn't too fussed about that. What it did have to do is employ a lot of people and we measured the number of people we employed who were um, single parents, the number of people we employed who were um, the w- women returners who were sort of working part-time from home, a number of disabled people we employed, you know, was very much HR focused. And um, it gave it a wonderful atmosphere, mm. of course. I mean, for many, many years, it was like a family company and I would know whose child had measles this week and all that
0: sort of thing. So when you when you do look at these trends about more purposeful, does it give you sort of a bit of a glow, knowing that you've done them forward And do you think that this is a necessary next of capitalism in itself to be on the whole, Better, better supportive of the community it serves?
1: Well the studies that have been done show that and I, I you know I follow the science. Um, so these social issues clearly impact staff recruitment, staff retention um, but more recently we have measured um, that they impact the bottom line Um, that customers want to deal with companies of a good, in a philosophical sense, repute. Um, They want to um, deal with organisations that, uh, you know, they come back faster, they buy more on each um, transaction. Um, There is no doubt that people now, when I was on the board of John Lewis for once many years, not many years. I was on the board of John Lewis for two years um, and they were one of the first to sort of know pretty well which cow the butter came from. (laughs) I mean, it was really... And and that's what people like. They like that feeling that they're part
0: of something decent. And you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that it takes a long time for people to sort of grow and adapt in that. So is that just... uh not hangover, but just sort of inevitable that it's taken 20 or 30 years for people to sort of want that from their companies or has something changed really recently and and especially people different generations are demanding companies now to be better faster Um, has there been anything in the industry that sort of you think set it off I think that well computers I suppose the sort of sheer
1: responsiveness that's required I mean we're not going to get customers unless we are really innovative and um, it's not enough Uh, let's try again I mean I think sometime before it was in you know a, a company would survive if it did something that other people were doing it just did it well it did it perhaps a little bit slicker, perhaps a little bit faster, perhaps a little bit cheaper, cheap price was more important. with now, that really isn't enough to, 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 to position a company. I think we all have to innovate, all have to innovate, all the time. And where does innovation comes from? It comes from diversity. And so I think we were well, I mean, I've always worked in research anyway, but, you know, the the, the business model also helped us to become very innovative because we've got all these people who were sort of thinking, well, suppose if we did this, well, well what would happen if we did that? Perhaps so-and-so. And we did very basic amateur things, like recording all the requests that we got that we couldn't meet. That's boring, boring, because, you know, I couldn't do it. But you begin to sort of see, oh, there's a pattern of things there. We ought to be able to... And and you know, very simple things in business seem to me just a way of doing it. Business. Yeah.
0: If you were to position if you were to start now today, for example, would it be more difficult? Um, because of the pace of change? Um, or do you think actually some of the issues that you the challenges you had back then were more entrenched?
1: Well, certainly from the gender issue, um, It was a legal impossibility for me to work on the stock exchange. I could write software for the stock exchange, couldn't work there, couldn't open a bank account, all all these sorts of things. Um, Whereas now they were just left with cultural things that women still say they find difficulty with, that they feel blocked in their um, male environment, that, you know, the things that I hear are so classic. So some of it has has really moved. The today's businesses really are all information technology. All of them, I mean, I can't imagine anything that isn't. Um, Even, you know, craft things, the care of profession, I'm using robots to teach autistic children. I mean, you know, everything is now going that way. And if you don't, you really get left behind. And and I don't think there's a business there. Mm.
0: And I have the, the last few questions of this interview. Um, you're now a venture philanthropist, as I think you've yeah. named yourself. What particular passion projects have you got and why? I mean, autism is that more close to heart.
1: Well, I try to do in, in, in philanthropy what I did in business. I try to focus. So I focus on things that I know and care about. And as happens, there are only really two things I know and care about, and that's information technology and autism, which is my late son's condition. So, in fact, I've given about 75% of my wealth to um, autism. And I was really persuaded to put stuff back into the IT industry um, on the basis that that's where the wealth stems from. And, and so it was right and proper to do that. So I that's co-founded exciting. the Oxford Internet Institute, for example, of which I'm very proud. And that's really a you know quality, multidisciplinary um, institute looking at all the social aspects of, of of you know network of networks the other is 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 autism where um i suppose i get more more pleasure these days um again i've sort of become a bit of an expert in autism my late son taught me a lot um the first charity that i set up um for autism my own son was the first resident of the first home of that first support charity um, but i've given uh, i think about 70 projects that other people have done so I've, usually when they're start-ups so i helped so i funded uh, a number of startups in the autism field and including four charities which are all autism um the support charity autism and kingwood which now looks after 150 people, um, 24/7, and um, keeps an overview one day a week, um, of another hundred people who, in the main, are able to live independently. Um, the school, which is my pride and joy, uh, you know, it's the largest of my projects, costs 30 million, um, but um, it also gives me the most pleasure because you see the children developing, you know, not just size-wise, and uh, you know you. We talk about graduates and some of them are leaving. I think last, left last Friday.
0: Um, and do you have any room for more passion projects? Do you think? Or, or? Oh yes, yes. yes. yes what are I you have. What are you looking at right
1: now? Well, again, it's artificial intelligence, but I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing, and I and I, I, you know, I shouldn't be starting new projects. I'm sensible. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> the last project I started was a three year project. In fact, I did two of that. When they come to the end, you think I shouldn't. You know. <laughs> I don't have, this is why I've, I don't have that energy to be a venture philanthropist mm. anymore. I really mm-hmm. don't. So I still support my checks and um, what's the one that I've just, oh, I've just. Uh, an oral history of something
0: in, in the autism field. Um, and the title of your book is Let It Go. Yeah. Is, is that what you're
1: tapping
0: what you, what into, just allowing yourself to that reach those n- limits?
1: More that is letting go of rancour. I had a very traumatic childhood um, and letting go of all that anger and fear and um, starting each day afresh. Um, and so whereas at one time I was a very depressive person um, now
0: I really am genuinely happy that's amazing and my last question and is by advice I suppose on, of entrepreneurs who do have that drive or, or are looking for any kind of um, insight into, into tapping into something innate within them I mean you mentioned just letting go now but if they, at the start of their careers how, how did you help I suppose how did you help shape what could have been, what is trauma, that could have been destructive and something constructive.
1: Well, I think each of us have got to find something that we, um, that we like, enjoy doing, and uh, become competent in it. Um, doesn't take long in some of the new, the newer fields. Um, I'm told if you spend ten thousand hours studying something, which is probably one day a week for four years, perhaps, that sort of, you know, it's quite manageable to do it. By the time you become an expert, you begin to really know something. Um, And um, when you've found that something, get trained, get trained again, and then just go for it, take a risk.